You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. We're in Joshua chapter 5. We're in this great Old Testament book looking at this sliver of Old Testament history of God's people. And chapters 1 through 4, as you recall, they have been preparing for and crossing the Jordan River to inhabit the land that God has promised to them. And here in chapter 5, we kind of make this switch in the story. Um, not, no longer thinking about how to prepare to inhabit the land, but what does life look like now, now that we're in the land? And remember, this is God's word. He speaks to us, no matter how strange and weird, and, the, and as you'll see, the topics become a little, uh, a little interesting. Uh, this is God's good for us. And so let's go to Joshua chapter 5. We'll read the first uh, 12 verses. Joshua 5, starting in verse 1. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war who died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had swore to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I've rolled away the, approach, the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening of the plains on the plains of Jericho. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. This is God's word. <clears throat> well, you should really see your faces right now. I think as uh, Joshua took command of God's army, the Israelite army, uh, this was not on the job description. <laughs> to make uh, a knife out of flint stones and to circumcise every man in all of God's people. Um, what I'm about to tell you, I understand, it kind of sounds like, you know, don't think about pink elephants. But here's what I'm going to tell you. Don't be distracted by this circumcision in this passage. Pay attention to what God is wanting to communicate to us in his character 
for his people and for us. And it's a lot. It's a lot what he wants to say. This unique observance um, that has paramount significance in the life of Israel, uh, because this was a sign. This observance was a sign of God's covenant between himself and his people. It was a requirement of the, the visible sign of membership, of belonging in the family of God. What did this unique observance mean for God's people? It means this, that circumcision signified God's gracious movement towards and identification with his people and the consecration of his people to himself. And here's the, the movement in chapter 5. God is moving towards his people, pursuing his people, and the people are consecrating themselves to him. God is reaffirming his vows to his people. I am with you. I belong to you. And they are setting themselves apart through obedience, through this observance, that we belong to you and we are your people now that we are in this land. No longer is, there's, is there this anticipation of crossing the Jordan River, but now there's this reality of new life in this new land that he has promised to them. And the questions are, how are they going to live in this new land? What kind of people will they be? What will they believe? What role will God play in their life? What will they teach their children? And is it one of these things where God has promised to give them the land and they finally get into this new land and he says, my job is done. I got you this far. I did what I said I was going to do. You're in the land. Now, please, this time, don't screw it up. Just do what I asked you to do. I mean, wonder if they're wondering that as well. And so this passage highlights this, this movement of God towards his people and his people setting themselves apart to be unique among all the nations. There's this continual consecration of the people of God to him that must happen for them. And it must happen for us too, who desire to know God, to trust him, and to worship him. And so here's the basic movement of this passage. It, there is punishment there is promise, and there is provision. Punishment, promise, and provision in this passage. Let's look first at, at punishment. Flint knives, the shedding of blood, the cutting away of flesh in a pretty sensitive area <laughs> before modern anesthesia. This all happening <clears throat> at a place called Gibeath Haraloth, which means in the Hebrew, the hill of the foreskins. Okay, so I'm done. I just needed to get that out of the way for you guys, okay? <clears throat> I just, we're given this graphic description of what's happening here. This graphic description, but we're told why. Because there is a generation of men who came out of Egypt that were rescued from slavery, and they had gone through this covenant observance. They had taken upon themselves their very bodies, the very mark of being God's people. And in verse 6, we are told, they, but they did not obey the voice of the Lord. They took on the mark of God and yet did not trust in God. And all of these men died in the wilderness. Every single one of them died in the wilderness. A whole generation of men who had said that we belong to God and are taking it upon ourselves to be to the, the mark of God of his covenant, and yet they did not obey the voice of God. And all these men who are now alive, who have now entered into the promised land, they were 
born in the wilderness. Born as people without a home and a, and a, a place to call their own, an identity to, to have their own. They're born in the wilderness, and yet they are now to receive this sign of God's covenant. Circumcision had a couple dual significance for them at this time. And here's the first one. In one sense, as they were to cut away at their own flesh, God is saying, I'm cutting you out of the world. I am cutting you out of the world, the rest of fallen humanity, and I'm consecrating you as a nation for myself. I'm, I'm, you are unique and distinct among the world. I'm cutting you out. You're different. I'm calling you out. They were to be identified as a blessed people, uh, uh, holy and separate in a world, and having this identity that they were in fellowship with the one and only true God. And so in a sense, it was this observance that said, you're being cut out of the world. And in another sense, their obedience to take upon this sign, to say yes to God and obey his command to do this, they are saying, God, if we fail, if we fail to obey your words, to keep the terms of this covenant and to obey your commands, we understand that we will be cut off from the benefits of your promises. If we fail to trust in you and to believe in you and to obey your voice, we recognize that we will be cut off from you. And so a cutting away of the world and then, and then this, this cutting away from God. Blessing and curse. These are the two parts of the covenant of God. They're blessings and curses. Blessings and, uh, for being faithful and curses and punishment for being faithless. Verse 6 tells us that an entire generation of God's people did not obey the voice of the Lord and therefore received the curse of this covenant. Here you have a generation of people literally marked by God as a sign of their unique identity from the world and relationship with their one true God. And here's the warning. It's possible it is possible to have all the outward marks of belonging to God while lacking a right response to God. It is possible to have all of those ingredients of, of looking like you are belonging to God and yet fail to have this response of true belief, of true saving faith. And this generation that died in the wilderness, I mean, they were cut off from the land of the living, cut off from the promises of God's covenant to live in this new land with new blessing. You can, you can experience the exodus from Egypt and witness these 10 plagues that came upon Pharaoh and his army. You can witness the Red Sea split wide open and walk on dry land through it. You can witness God's mighty power over your enemies. You can see food fall from heaven when you're hungry and water flow from a rock in the desert when you're thirsty. You can see all of that and still not believe. And this is this warning now for this new generation who has now come into the promised land that you can see the Jordan River open up and you could walk through it on dry land. You could witness God defeat your enemies in all of these pagan cities that are before you. You can know the stories that your parents have told you about the mighty hand of God but if you fail to believe, you will forfeit the blessing of God's covenant promise. We know that God's plan to bless his people are not fully contingent upon their ability to be faithful. For otherwise, they would have all died in the wilderness. 
They would have all died there, and none would ever enter into the promised land. But God is highlighting here and showing them there that there are real curses and consequences that come from failing to believe in God. The story emphasizes the, not just the punishment that comes as a failure to believe, but the promise that will endure, the promise of God. The second movement in this story is the promise of God. One way to understand the whole Bible story, the whole biblical story, is this. The Bible story keeps going despite the failures of God's people. God's purposes and his story keep enduring despite the failures of his people. Why does the story continue? Why does any of the Bible continue? I mean, it should have ended at the Garden of Eden. I mean, this whole story should have ended at the Garden of Eden. God told Adam and Eve, if you obey, you will have pleasure forever. And if you disobey, you will surely die. The Bible is, is not just a collection of recorded history over a span of, think about it, a span of 4,000 years of history. The Bible should be three pages long. I mean, in my Bible, it's, it's actually two and a half pages long. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and, and like half of Genesis 3. Hey, have you read the Bible? Yeah, I actually did it this morning while I stopped at a red light. It took about three minutes. That's how long the Bible should be. God created everything. He created uh, humankind. He put them in paradise. He promised to them life and love and fellowship forever. And they rebelled against him. End of story. And God would be completely justified in stopping the story right there. But he continues. And it continues all the way to Genesis 9. When God looks upon the, the, all the wickedness of the world and he looks at the evil that has come up in the land and God laments the fact that he has created people at all. And so he purposes to kill off all living things, but he spares Noah, commands him to build an ark and he floods the, the world and every living thing dies, but those who are in the ark, his family and the living creatures that he was commanded to bring into there. And God saved him, and he gets to dry land. And in this new life, one of the first things that Noah does is he gets drunk and naked and dishonors himself, his family, and his God. The Bible should end there. The story should be finished. God said, I gave it another try. And it's obviously not worth saving. But it doesn't end there. It continues. And then it goes on to Genesis 15, just a few chapters more, and God affirms his promise to Abram. He, put, he picks out this guy, and he says, you are going to be the father of a great nation, and this nation will bless the whole world. And if you can count the stars in the sky, that's how many descendants you will have. And I will give you a land that will be your land forever. You will inhabit this land and Abraham says, that's great, one problem. My wife's 100, and I don't have any children. And so Abraham circumvents God's plan to and takes matters into his own hands in an act of betrayal and honor to the character of God and his own wife, impregnates another woman, trying to think, well, maybe this will work. The story should end in Genesis 15, but it doesn't. It keeps going. The Bible story is a story of person after person failing to live up to God's promises 
failing to live up to their own promises to him and, the, and a story of a God who will never give up. Why? Why is circumcision so important in this passage? Why are God's promises and plans so important? Why does this happen for an entire generation of men to go through this, this gruesome and bloody observance as they enter into the promised land? Because in verse 6 it says, because God swore an oath. Because God made a promise and God does not go back on his promises. It should end in all of these, every story of scripture and command that is given to God's people, the story should end right after they fail. But it keeps going. And as quickly as we are told of the punishment that has come upon God's people, right there in the same verse, before it could even finish the story of their punishment, we see this story of God's promise being reaffirmed. But God swore an oath. Without missing a beat, we're reminded of the promise of God. Now let's talk about this obvious tension here. And, and you can just, maybe you've already thought this, but I want to read it a little slower in in verse 6 again, um, the second half. Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, the Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give to us. Okay, so this is a little confusing. God swears twice. He says, I promise you will not get the thing that I promised that you would get. Wait, which one? So which one are you going to, which, which promise should I trust in? Which promise is true? This is weird. God is swearing twice, but which one is it? But God, you promised. Yeah, but I'm making a new promise now, and this new promise is better than that other promise. That's not what hap what's happening, but it's important to point out. This is what's happening. We can reconcile this dilemma pretty quickly and easily without scandalizing the character of God because God does not go back on his promises. And here's how. God never promises any of his benefits of salvation to those who do not believe. God does not promise salvation to unbelievers. He does not promise salvation to those who reject him. The blessing of God's covenant promises belong to those who believe in him and those alone. And for them, he will never fail. His promises will never fail. And this invitation to believe in God, to have faith in God, to trust in him. Circumcision is, is not a requirement to be saved. It is not a work of salvation. They've already crossed the Jordan. They've already been saved and they are uncircumcised. They've already been given the promised land, and yet they have not received this sign. But circumcision for them, even though it's not a requirement salvation for salvation, it is a requirement for obedience. It is a requirement for them for obedience as a demonstration of their faith in God. And in this graphic ceremony, we learn the character of God we learn about what his promises mean and how true he is to fulfill what he said he would do. The character of God, which was manifested to Abraham many years prior. The promise was originally made to Abraham, this covenant that, and the sign of circumcision that was given to 
him and his son. God told Abraham, you have no children at this time. I understand you don't. You're going to be the father of a great nation, and you will inherit this land west of the Jordan. And Abraham asked the question that you and I would ask the question if we were in his situation, and that is, can I get that in writing? But really what he says is this. He says, by what sign will I know that this will happen? And so because there's no one greater than God, because he cannot swear by anybody other than himself, because there is no one greater than him, he swears by himself. I mean, what can God put his hand to? You know, can he say, like, I swear on the Bible, you know, or I swear on my grandma, I swear on my only son, you know? Well, actually, that's kind of true. He does do that. But what, what does God swear by if he has nothing greater than himself? Can he swear by the mountains or angels or oceans? Nothing is greater than God. And so he swears by himself, and he says, I have a better idea. Uh, go get all of these animals, bring them to me, and cut all of these animals in half. And as you cut them and divide them in two, face them on each other, through, and this, have this aisle in the middle, and lay them on the ground. And the way that people would make this binding covenant uh, a long time ago, when they meant business, when they really wanted to drive the point home, like, we're going to enter into this business contract, this business covenant, and I promise I will fulfill its terms, was they would cut an animal in half, basically saying, if I don't fulfill my terms of my covenant and my promise to you, let this be done to me. And there is a similar way we might, like you see in movies where like a spit and a handshake or like they cut your arm, you cut your hand and there's blood that's drawn and you shake on it. It's this bond and promise that is bound in blood. If I do not fulfill my promise, this is what will happen to me. Let this be done to me. I will be slaughtered. And Abraham knows how to make this agreement. So he cuts these animals in halves and he lays them on the ground. And I imagine Abraham is thinking at this time, I see where God is going with this. He's making a really big promise to me and he's going to lay the terms on the table for me. And if I do not be faithful to God, he is going to do this to me. But God twists the story and does something very different. He causes a deep sleep to come over Abraham so that Abraham would literally have no participation in this covenant. And while he is asleep, God would, his presence would pass through in between these two animals and their broken body. And in so many words, it is God who is saying, if I am not faithful to what I have promised for you, then let this be done to me. And all that Abraham was called to do was to believe in this promise. And he believed. And he is the father of our faith in this sense because he believes in faith. Believing in the promise of God. We are told that he believed and because he believed he would receive the blessings of of God's covenant promises. And this is the point of this gruesome and bloody event. Human rebellion will never get in the way of God's promises. Human unfaithfulness will never get in the way of what God said that he will do. And that should make you and I trust him with a trust that is unshakable. Trust him no matter what the cost to our life. Because when God says, I swear that I will do this, I promise I have made an oath, we know that nothing will get in the way of God. There is nothing greater that he can swear by, so he swears by himself. It always requires faith to obey. 
it always requires faith to take a step of obedience and to do what God has said. And this physical sign of circumcision was a mark of obedience for God's people, an affirmation of the faith that they had in his promises, liberating God's people from this downward pull of sin and temptation in their hearts and empowering them to live a life with a new faith in this new land that they were going to inhabit. And the God who promises the future is also the God who provides for it. And here we are shown that he is not one that just recognizes and criticizes their failure and punishes them for their failure and then re-ups his promise and say, now go and try again and do it better this time. But he is a God who goes with them across the Jordan and provides for them. This is that final movement in the, is the provision of God. We've seen the punishment for their sin. We've seen the reaffirmed promise of God to be faithful. And now we see his provision in the new land. So that we don't miss the point of verse 11 through 12, the author states the same phrase three times in just two verses. The phrase, they ate of the produce of the land. Three times we are told to be very clear that what they were doing, they were eating of the food that they found in the other side, on the other side of the Jordan. You may recall that while they were wandering in the wilderness, or in the wilderness, don't think of like this plush green rainforest place. Wilderness meaning a barren desert. And bread fell from heaven every single day, and that's what they ate. Manna from heaven, God provided food for them and water for them. And every day they were only given food that they could gather and eat for that day. And they had to trust every single morning that God would provide again. And every day God would provide food from heaven, only enough for that day. And they had to trust in him every single day. And on the day that they crossed the Jordan, the food from heaven stopped to fall. And the question is, does that mean that God has stopped, has stopped providing? That he has stopped giving to them? Clearly not. The point of this is clear that they now eat of the food of the land that God promised to them as an overflow of his faithfulness rather than a lack of it. An overflow, an abundance that he doesn't just give us what he said, but he gives it to us until it overflows. I hope you see the, the beauty in this. We see two pictures, two lives in this short passage. We see a picture of famine and wandering and a people without a home and rationed food, and weary hearts, and aching feet. And now we have an abundance of food in the land that, that God had promised, and we have rest and variety of different kinds of food that the, la the land provides, and rested hearts. And in between these two stories is the shedding of blood that identifies them as the people of God. Because when God promises us a future, it is not a future that just merely looks a little bit better than the one we have right now, but a future abundant in the presence, in his presence with his provision. Not just a little bit better. The reproach of Egypt has been rolled away, this says. Imagine that. They have been wandering. They have been a people who were oppressed and traumatized and enslaved. They were a people who were abused for generations and generations. And they have left this place and they have yet to obtain the promise that God had, had, had given to them. 
that they had hoped would come. Heartache after heartache. And they still live under this umbrella of shame. And now God is saying, I am rolling all of that away and replacing the shame that you have felt from Egypt now with fear in the hearts of your enemies towards you. This whole identity shift, the reproach of Egypt is being rolled away like a stone. One day, very soon, a breeze will come through Tucson and will push away the reproach of the summer. I, I, I choose to believe it. It is palpable. I can feel it. I know you can feel it too. It will be a breeze that just wipes away the oppressive heat and brings forth pumpkin spice lattes. <laughs> what a joyful occasion it must have been for these people of God to eat food now from their own hands, made from the bounty of the land that God had given to them. To know that they're no, lo no longer under the disapproval of Egypt and the shame of Egypt. Their reputation's been changed. Their circumstances have been changed. Their bodies have been changed. They go into this new life, different in many ways, all because God swore an oath. All because he promised to them. Did you know that there's no greater, there, there's a greater percentage of verses in the New Testament than the Old Testament that talk about the promise made to Abraham and the sign of circumcision as a sign of what God would do. The circumcision of the flesh was always meant to point to the circumcision of the heart. The cutting away of flesh, the cutting away of dead parts, the, the making way for new life a new heart that responds to God, that knows he is with us, that trusts in him. And as circumcision, we are clearly told in the scriptures, has given way to baptism as the sign of being part of the family of God. And the Passover meal has given way to the Lord's Supper as this continual memorial to remind us of what God has done. And as circumcision looked forward to the shedding of blood, the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross, baptism looks back to the reproach of our sin that is washed away at the cross. And as the Passover meal was, meant, was given to God's people and meant to be celebrated because of God's provision through the blood of the lamb that was slaughtered, it is the Lord's Supper that celebrates God's provision through the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb of God, who is Jesus Christ. There is no place in the Old Testament where we see a brighter picture of the unconditional nature of the gospel than through the underlying meaning of circumcision and to the truths that it points. A cutting away of the old and bringing new life because of God's gracious fulfillment of his promises. Are we saved by promise or are we saved by performance? The sign of this covenant is clear. It is always through promise. It is always by promise that we find ourselves in the loving, saving care of God. 
The God who promises is the God who provides, and it's only available to us because he is the God who takes punishment on himself. That punishment that is meant for us, right? The, the story just should stop every single time God reaffirms his vows to his people and they say, okay, we'll try harder this time. And the minute they fail, the story should end, but it keeps going over 4,000 years and counting. We see this story repeating itself. God swore an oath to his people and he will never forsake us. And our call is to believe in him. Colossians chapter 2 in the New Testament um, bridges this gap between the old and the new of these sacrament signs so well. And here's what it says in Colossians 2 verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them in open shame by triumphing over them in him. Here we see reproach. We see the disapproval of God. We see the enemies of our faith. And we see Christ disarming our enemies, defeating our enemies, sin and the devil. We see dead hearts and, and, and defiled bodies being resurrected into new life. And this picture of a heart that is of stone, that has been made to be a heart of flesh, that for the first time could believe in God, trust in him, and love him. We see a, 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 a rolling away of shame and guilt that hangs over our life because of our sin. And this shame, all that is despised in the life that doesn't obey God is thrown on Jesus and nailed to the cross. And what do we get out of it? For those who believe, what do we get? The canceling of the record of our debt that stands between us and God. The river that separates the old life and the new life. Our sin, this great chasm that we cannot cross ourselves, we cross because the punishment fell on Jesus. Jesus was cut off so that we could be brought near. We deserve to be cut off. If you fail, you shall be cut off. But the story continues even when we fail. Jesus is cut off. In our place. Jesus was buried so that we could be raised. Jesus took our punishment so that our sins could be rolled away like a stone. The stone over Jesus' tomb was rolled away and he was not found in it because he triumphed over death and sin so that our guilt and shame could be rolled away for all who believe. It's beautiful what God is doing, it's beautiful what he has done, it's beautiful through this gruesome, bloody event. And it's beautiful though, that through that gruesome and bloody event on the cross where we see the love of God poured out for us. You can trust him. He swears by himself that he will never 
ever give up on fulfilling his promises to those who believe in him. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.